name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Hello, 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 and welcome to this edition of Talking Bat, or should I actually say Talking Mammals. I am so delighted today to be joined by John Hall of MammalWatching.com. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hi, Neil. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. No, I'm delighted that you're here. And uh, despite your accent, that might throw some people because you don't have a particularly uh, strong accent. Where exactly are you based? Because you're not based in the United Kingdom. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I'm talking to you from New York, where I've lived for the last 10 years. Um, But I'm kind of a bit of a gypsy, really. I grew up in the UK, in North Wales, in Llandudno spend a little bit of time in Zambia, then I moved to Australia for seven years and fell in love with the place, became an Australian, then I was in France for seven years, and then I've ended up in New York where I've been for the last 10. So when you say you became an Australian, did, did you actually go for Australian citizenship or? Yes, I'm legally and spiritually an Australian. Um, wow. So, yeah. Okay. So you're a Welsh bloke who's legally and spiritually Australian living in New York, yeah? Exactly, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know where I'm from anymore either. But <laughs> anyway, it's, it's good, it's all good. So uh, we're going to talk about so much today and wow, this is going to be uh, quite inspirational, I'm quite sure, to many people that are going to be watching this. You're setting and... the bar pretty high here, so um... let's <laughs> see. <laughs> Yeah, I'm talking about the bits that you're going to talk about, okay? Not about uh, the bits that yeah. I'm talking about. <laughs> so I've, I've got you. Yeah, I didn't know how to describe you, really, uh, because I went into the About Us page of the Mammal Watching website, and there was a bit that said about John, and I thought, brilliant. When I log on to that bit, John's going to kind of maybe say how he would describe himself, but it kind of launches into a story a bit and it didn't really help me too much. How would you describe yourself? Um, oh, that's in many ways, but I, I mean, I suppose I'm someone who's passionately interested in mammals. I'm not, not a professional biologist or scientist, but um, from the mammal watching side, I'm, I'm a mammal watcher, someone who makes an effort to go and find and look for mammals around the world. Um, I'm a lister. I'm, would be a twitcher, I'm sure, if mammals flew and went to strange islands. Um, but it's very much a hobby and a passion, and some people would say an obsession. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Is that enough description, or do you need more? No, no, that that no, that sounds good. Yeah. So look, okay, here we go. So I, I've been a bird watcher, or a birder, yeah. as I would call myself now, since the age of eight, yeah. And in the birding world, we have different descriptions for different types of bird watcher. So yeah. we've got bird watcher, we've got twitcher, we've got birder, and we've got ornithologist. There's probably a yeah. whole load of others as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do we have something similar for mammal mammals, or is everybody just the same thing if they're a, a mammal watcher, so to speak? It's a, good, it's a really good question. It's something I remember talking about with friends and family when I sort of first started thinking about this. And 
yes, there are mammalogists, which is the sort of ornithological equivalent, um, but they would be like say scientists. And I sometimes, if I'm writing to sort of cozy up to a research around the world, I will describe myself as a as an amateur mammalogist. Um, mammal watcher is equivalent to birder in my mind. It's someone who, not not like not like a bird watcher, but a bird as someone who goes off and looks, you know, actively looks for mammals. Um, and if you can hear a strange noise, it's a dog scratching okay. on the door. So Sorry, yeah. the word <laughs> mammal. It was like she should be in here. Um, but the Twitcher side, yeah, I mean, we're trying to think of a name for this and I really couldn't come up with, up, up with one. Someone described we should be called snufflers, which, <laughs> which made me laugh. Um, that sounds a bit dodgy. I, yeah, it does sound very dodgy. Let's say just Twitcher, to be honest. Um, so if anyone has got anyone out there listening has a suggestion, I'd, be, I'd love to hear it. But um, and we were talking a little bit actually on on the podcast about this recently, and um, about why you know why why some people are more sort of listers than others, and difference between men and women, and whether there was a difference. And someone said, at least in the birding world, they talk about inquisitive and acquisitive birders. Okay. So those who are inquisitive like to go out and look at things and observe, but it's not just about the numbers, acquisitive are the listers. Uh, so maybe I, I was, I'd like to think I was a bit of both, but if, it, if I had to choose one, I'd say I was an acquisitive mammal watcher, okay. uh, which would be a twitcher, I suppose, it, but okay. we need a better word. Yeah. Okay, so obviously I know a lot of people in the, the birding world have grown up in that world. And yeah. let's, look, I get a buzz out of seeing new stuff. Okay, and when I travel, you know, to other parts of the world, uh, when it comes to birds and mammals, especially those two groups, I get very uh, excited and keen to engage myself with things that I've never encountered before. Yeah. And it's always a good day when I settle down for a beer at night and I've seen something new that day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Now, you've, you've got a... You know, you've got, you know, almost a couple of thousand tales, eh, which we'll get into in a minute, about mm. probably feeling like that. But I also get quite engaged eh, and equally excited if I come across something that I've seen before, but mm. I get a really good opportunity to see it in its proper habitat, behaving naturally, maybe doing something eh, particularly interesting, etc. Would you say you get an equal kind of buzz from from each of those, or are you definitely more geared to? Right, I've seen that now. I want to move on to the next thing. I mean, how how would you? Yeah, put um, it? I I certainly enjoy both of what you you say very much, and I love seeing a species really well and doing something you know prolonged and in a, being very relaxed. I was just just in Ecuador a week or so back and primates there in one particular place was so relaxed and I'd seen them before but it was so lovely to see these species not at all worried about my presence um but yeah seeing something new is the bigger thrill I think yeah. I'm not like someone who would sort of watch something for 10 seconds and say right let's move on to the next thing okay. no I'd, I'd like to sit there for half an hour and get a really good look and feel I've you know unless we're disturbing the animals will stay as long as I feel comfortable but um yeah my, my heart is probably pushed more in that direction than than the other if I had to choose. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. I, I can totally relate to that. And um, my, my wife, any time that she's been overseas with me, uh, or trips, um, they, I mean, thankfully she's quite interested, in some respects very interested in a lot of this stuff as well. 
but uh, but it's like I go through a personality change when yeah. I leave <laughs> Europe. No, <laughs> it's just like right. I'm in Africa. I'm in Central America. I'm in Asia, yeah. Yeah. and it's I've got the mammal books, the bird books. Uh, I joke with her. Well, I don't joke with her because it's the truth, yeah. and you can probably relate to this. And um, I get the suitcase ready for the trip, right? And I put in the telescope, the tripod, the binoculars, the bat-detecting recording equipment, the various field guides, and then I basically fit my clothes around all of that. Does that exactly, and nothing else. Everything else is just optional. Where you've got to get the main things in there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Where did all this start? Okay, where did it all begin? This is a picture of you in. Zambia. Now, this was taken, what, a couple of weeks ago? or uh... Yeah, when I had my hair fell out suddenly. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was in 1991. Wow. So I was, uh, what, 23 or something, 24 maybe. Um, yeah, I first got the bug there. That was my first time in Africa. I mean, I, when I grew up in the UK, my dad in particular was, he was interested in, my granddad was a big sort of, like one of the first ornithologists. He was a big ringer from, you know, from the early 20th, 20th century. Um, so I would, you know, he had a room full of stuffed birds and eggs he collected as a little kid that used to fascinate me. Yeah. So him and then my dad, you know, I, I love nature as a, as a young boy, but became a teenager and, you know, it's high school and trying to fit in and other things get in the way. So I sort of lost the bug then, but when I, I had a chance to go and live in Zambia for a year after, after university. And I remember that first sort of game drive in the African bush, I was just completely lost. This was this is like the, all the David Attenborough shows I'd seen as a kid came flooding back. And that I really was bitten hard then um, by the bug. And it, it grew from there. But I'd say Zambia, that, that, that year was the year that really sowed it deep into my, into my soul. Yeah. Wow. And then after that, you, am I right in saying you ended up, well, you, you said already, you then ended up in Australia. So how, how do you, okay, so here's, here's the question. Yeah. How does someone... You know, that starts off life in Wales, end up in Zambia, and then end up in Australia. What what is the what is the backdrop to that? Because you didn't leave Wales just to go on holiday or go mammal watching. Because yeah. <clears throat> no, t- tell us a little bit about that. Um, I mean, I was just been, been very lucky. Sort of like fortunate things have happened. So, my girlfriend when I was at uni, who I got. On, Went on to marry she's not my wife now but my first wife her her dad was a diplomat so they moved to zambia and and you know i was working in london for a year after 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 university and not enjoying it at all just doing some boring kind of number crunching job and they said you know why don't you come out and stay in zambia for us with us for a year and you can probably get a job volunteering with the un uh then they're always looking for people so of course you know yeah let, let's do that that sounds fun and that so that's how i ended up there um and it just opened my eyes to, to a world I'd, you know, never really experienced. So as a kid, I think you know, I had a, we had a, my aunt lived in France. We went to France once or maybe twice growing up, but I'd never left the country until I was nineteen, other than France. Um, and I just sort of had no idea, I suppose. And went to Zambia, was absolutely obsessed then with getting back to Africa or doing something there. And I and I you know I'd, I did I did study maths at university, which is not particularly useful if you want to travel. It's not like, you know, developing countries are crying out for more mathematicians. So I thought, well, how can I get a skill that I could actually use and get a job in Africa and go and, you know, go and do something and earn, 
and living there. So I decided to become a statistician and studied that while I was working for the public service in the UK okay. uh, part time. And then sort of things changed with my wife. We didn't, we, she wasn't so keen to go to Africa anymore. Um, but I was like, we've got to go somewhere. I want to go and look at mammals. I want to have that, that experience and live somewhere a bit more adventurous than, than um, Enfield in North London. So statisticians are, they move around a lot. And the UK statistics office where I worked had a very close relationship with the Australian statistics office. Okay. And so because of friends, new friends, I managed to get a transfer there for a year, um, just work experience, go and work in Australia for a year. But the minute I got off the plane and landed in Australia, in Sydney on Australia Day, 26th of January, 1999. And within 20 minutes, it was like love at first sight. I do not want to leave this country. It was, you know, there were there were kind of cool birds in the car park at the airport and the coffee was great and people were so friendly <laughs> and it was sunny and, you know, I'd left the UK in January. And I knew then, this is it, I've got to stay. So I then quickly decided I needed a plan to, to stay there. So I ended up staying and became a citizen. Um, yeah. Wow. And I take it you continued to work as a st statistician for the rest of your professional life. Are, are you still, are, are you employed at the moment or are you now retired? I wish I was a full-time retired mammal watcher. No, I work at the moment. I am sort of a statistician. So, okay. uh, but I don't really look at numbers that much anymore, if that makes sense. Um, I'm certainly not a hardcore you know, you know, sort of statistician who can actually get someone's biological data and make sense of it, which is one question I often get when I, I talk to biologists, none of whom like stats very much, the ones I meet. Yeah. Um, I work for the United Nations now. So for the last, so after Australia, I moved to, to, to Europe to work for the OECD, which has been called like the country club of the United Nations. It's the rich countries who have a, an organization together where they share research. Okay. Um, and I got into this idea in Australia and then I did it there of the idea of measuring things that matter in life, looking at well-being and happiness and thinking that there's much more to life than economic growth. Okay. And of course, this was a chance for me to talk about mammals and think about biodiversity and get all those things into the metric. So how do we measure that? How do we get those numbers out there in the, in the public domain? So people, when people are assessing who to vote for or whether life is really getting better in Australia or the UK or anywhere, they don't just say, well, what's, what's gross domestic product doing? Is the economy growing? You know, and if it is, everything's fine. It's what about air pollution? What about land clearing? What about biodiversity, health, education, all these things? Um, and back in 2000, when I started that in Australia, it was, it was very much a fringe idea. And all the economists I spoke to would just roll their eyes and say, you know, either that's nonsense, GDP is all that matters, or some of the more enlightened ones would say, well, you, you're, you're sort of right, but really GDP, gross domestic product, economic growth, correlates with all those other things you talk about and when countries get richer their health gets better and their education does and they they start protecting the environment so why don't we just measure gdp there's no need um but you know working on that then in australia and in france and now at the un 20 years later it's the, that's really changed there's a bunch of nobel's prize winning economists who are completely on board and talk about this all the time as if they've been saying it forever so um it's become sort of mainstream at least in the the, the research world and some politicians um, look at this and talk about it, but still, you know, economic growth is still very much what matters in many countries still probably the only thing that I'm, we're trying. So that's the story. So I'm, I'm looking at those measures, how to think about 
let's say, well-being, and then how to get those measures communicated so that people pay attention and policies change. Wow. You know something? I am so glad I asked that question because that is something <laughs> that I would imagine a lot of people uh, wouldn't have uh, learned about you. Yeah. Um, right, because, yeah. Uh, well, in Scotland, of course, it's a big thing. Um, it was. The Scottish... The Scots are leaders in this. They've got their well-being, sort of people in government, and... Um, okay. yeah. It's something that's become quite mainstream in Scotland, at least. So they're sort of leading light in this. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if it's the same thing, but we quite yeah. often see over here uh, things like uh, the UK's top ten places to live, for argument's sake. Yeah. And they then have a whole load of uh, things that people have worked out, which, as you say, nothing to do with money, but to yeah. do with things like crime rate, the health service. Um, you know, exactly. Fitness, These are the things that matter. All this exactly. Kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and now and again, uh, some places in Scotland appear. Uh, <laughs> not, not any of the places I live, unfortunately. <laughs> and you go, oh, I'd like to go and live there. And then you check the price of houses, and you go, mm, maybe not. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that's that, that's brilliant. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining that ability club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your case, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. So let's uh, let's just go back to uh, where we were. So we've talked a bit there about Australia. And mm-hmm. he- here's a, a picture of you. I'm assuming this is you in, what, your mid-20s now at this point? or uh, Probably, let me think, uh, mid-30s. So that's me on Barrow Island, which is, uh, you know, people who know about Australia will know that the country, the mainland is overrun with cats and foxes and all sorts of other feral animals. Yeah. But Barrow Island is one of the islands off the west, which has been kept free of all those. So it's it's an oil and gas. It's really an oil and gas plant, um, okay. and it's managed by the, the the company that sort of extracts the gas. But you know they'll let biologists come on because there's a bunch of species on there that are really pretty much extinct everywhere else. So I got on a trip to go and help catch burrowing betongs, a small a small kangaroo that burrow obviously. Um, so I was there for a week, and it was really a really cool place. Yeah. Uh, uh- I'm gonna I'm gonna warn people now, okay? And it's maybe just me, but I've listened to a few of your podcasts, yeah. uh, which we'll talk about shortly. And look, I like to think I'm fairly engaged with mammals, okay, and wildlife and mammals and birds in particular. But when I listen to your podcasts about some of the the mammals that you've engaged with or that you're hoping to see in the future. You come up with mammals' name, mammal names, and I think I haven't got a flipping clue whether that's got four legs or three legs, or if it lives in a tree, or if it lives underground. Um, so yeah, uh, I was gonna have, I was actually going to have a book of all of the mammal species in front of me in case, uh, <laughs> well, in case you came up with any names where I thought. I don't know if that's a monkey or a mouse, but uh, I'm glad I'm glad you explained what that was. Because just interrupt so. me if I say something. I'm always doing this. I know. I just forget sometimes that um, <laughs> not all of these things are as present at the top of people's minds as they are always no. in mine. So just inter- just let me know. No, 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 it's all good because uh, yeah. But again, listen. You know, I, 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 I was saying to you before we started. Um, 
take me away from uh, the British Isles or maybe at best Northwest Europe uh, mm-hmm. and put me anywhere else in the planet. And I haven't got a clue. Some people would say I don't have a clue anyway, but I don't have a clue what I'm looking at without a book uh, yeah, and a pair right. of binoculars. So, uh, yeah. yeah, that's good stuff, good stuff. So, okay, so that's really good. So we've, uh, we've explored your backdrop, what you do now. And I take it, does your, does your work, does that enable you to do any travelling internationally still? Or is all of the travelling that you do now, is that all on your own time? I mean, what's, what's the script there? Is that about both? Or? I, you know, I, when I was in Europe for seven years, I travelled uh, a ridiculous amount. Even for work, I was in a different continent every week. So that was, you know, it was a very stimulating job, but it was also fantastic for my mammal list. Uh, at the UN, I haven't really travelled so much. Maybe two or three trips a year, if I'm lucky. Yeah. Uh, obviously, in the last year and a half, no work trips at all. Yeah. Um, so mainly, it's it's personal stuff now, yeah. almost entirely. The last few years. Okay, and you haven't been you haven't been doing this all of your life, so to speak, to the extent that uh, you do it now. I think I'm right in saying, 15, 16, 17 years ago, you started this mammal watching. Dot com. I don't know if it existed as a website back then, but this is an amazing resource. And if you haven't seen this resource, anybody that's watching, it's definitely worth checking out. There is so much information uh, on this particular website. But tell us a little bit behind why did you decide to set up this facility, resource, however you would describe it? Yeah, no, thanks. Um, so this, yeah, this was in, just when I was leaving Australia in late 2005, um, I set up the website and I, it wasn't, didn't look like this, but I, I got the domain and started it. Now, why did I do it? And there were two main reasons back then. Um, I'd been in Australia for seven years and I'd you know, spent that time just trying to see as many of the species as I could. And there's very, very little information back then on where to see, where to see things. Um, so I, most of what I found out I got from going to professional like mammalogy, the science conferences, and talking to the researchers uh, who are an extremely friendly bunch in Australia and saying, look, where do I see this? Can I come and help you trap sometime? Can I volunteer? And, and they were very, very sort of welcoming, just fascinated that someone who wasn't an academic uh, mammologist wanted to come to their conferences and, and help. So they, they, they really indulged me. Um, so I managed to piece together a great deal of information. So first, first off was, look, I'm leaving Australia. I'm feeling very, very sad about that. I want to sort of give something back. So let me put this information on the site so other people don't have to, to have the sort of um, treasure hunt that I've had to go through to get all this stuff. Uh, and the second thing was, you know, just like the devil has all the good music, the bird has had all the best information. So I was like extremely <laughs> envious. You know, these books on where to find the birds of Australia with detailed instructions on you go to the car park and you look in the bush on the left and you'll see the (laughs) grass wren and and there was nothing like that for animals just vague sort of hints of where you might find them so i was extremely envious of this and it didn't make sense to me i still i mean why it's not that hard you know when you start looking for mammals and you talk to the the scientists you can see a lot of stuff in australia and i ended up seeing 250 species in seven years or something um so you can find stuff there it's just people don't know they don't know you can find it because there's a perception that mammals are really hard. I think there still is. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, you don't know where to look. So it's let's challenge that and put this, put this website up to try and get more people interested in this idea of mammal watching. Because when 
I started it, I knew a couple of guys in Australia who were very keen on their mammals. Um, but they were they were birders, you know, first and foremost at heart. And they, they had a great mammal list, but birding bycatch. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I thought to myself, I'm the world's only mammal watcher, but I'm going to do this anyway. <laughs> um, and I wasn't, you know, after a few months, people, I think mainly in the UK, a couple of people started writing and saying, oh, I found your site. I'm really into cats, a guy called Richard Webb. Um, they might have one of the longest cat lists in the world. And <laughs> Charles Foley, who does the podcast with me, he got onto me from Africa and said, I, because I spent you know, half the reports on my early, on the site to begin with were about, I hadn't seen an aardvark and I really wanted to. I was like obsessed right. with aardvarks out there from Africa. And he'd just seen one. So he told me and, and it grew from there. And then increasingly now um, I get, you know, there's, I think, I guess most people who are sort of identify as mammal watchers know about the site, I would think. But I do get birders writing to me who almost like they're coming out, you know, they're saying, <laughs> I've always liked mammals, but I haven't dared sort of speak this love to the world. But I found your site and there's a community. So they're signing up and um, they're like, you know, I love mammals. I just didn't realize there was this sort of information. So that's still happening. So it's it's growing. And I suppose now I know it's very hard to know how many people use it because of all the spam and everything. But there's you know a couple of thousand people are probably you know, look at it each month at least. Wow. Um, and there's there's probably a thousand or so people who've sent in trick reports. So that map is not all the places I've been, but it's it's the places that um, we have reports from. Yeah. So, you know, a good chunk of the world is covered yeah. uh, in varying degrees of detail. Yeah. So it's been a lot of fun. And a lot of resources on here. Um, I mean, we, we can't obviously even begin to talk about, you know, how much there is on here, but there's all kinds of stuff, including uh, links to, for example, your various life lists, which I'm going to talk about uh, in a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, links to, uh, here we've got a link here, this is just a random link off of the site, the world's yeah. best mammal watching top 20 people in places, for example. Uh, it's it's amazing. It really is an amazing resource, and I've just scratched the surface on it. But the thing, the thing that uh, look, okay, it's commonly known. I would suggest that David Attenborough has seen more mammals than anybody else on the planet. Yeah, <laughs> or is that actually true, John? Do you know for a fact if you've seen more mammals than David Attenborough? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny i just asked the bbc about this um so there the, the i've been talking a little bit with the people who are doing the new life of mammals uh okay. show for the bbc they're just starting to put it together now so i said you know if david Atter was ever in the office could you ask him because people always ask yeah. me that yeah. uh, i'd love to find out i mean i suspect to be honest i might have seen more than him i mean he's he'll have seen more of the charismatic big stuff but given the, you know, the hundreds of bats and rodents I've seen yeah. that don't usually feature in the BBC shows. I would think that there might be a chance I've seen more than him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would love to, I would, I must actually try and get in touch and ask him. I don't suppose you'll reply. David, if you're watching, could you, <laughs> could you let me know? He's not signed up to Bat Ability Club yet. I'm but surprised. You never, never know. Never know. Yeah. Uh, I just want, I wonder if he's actually got a list. He I bet he must list, have, he? surely. So interested in everything. Um, I, I get really suspicious of people when they tell me they don't have lists. Uh, I just, <laughs> yeah. I just, and, and I and I definitely know people that don't have lists, okay, in the yeah. bat world, for example. Yeah. Um, 
but they know what they've seen and what they've they got a list seen. in their head that's right but, it's just not yeah. on paper yeah yeah and, 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 and listen this is something for battleability club members because they hear me say this all the time all right if it ain't documented, it never happened. All right, that's <laughs> and that's part of the reason why you need to keep a list. Um, yeah. Because when you get to my sort of age, um, you do begin to forget stuff that you maybe saw decades ago. Oh, exactly. It's, yeah. it's nice to have that reminder, you know, yeah. where you were or who you were with when you saw something. No, precisely. I frequently so, look at my my site and I sort of go back to. Things I saw in the nineties, sort of a couple of rare mongooses in in Zambia and Zimbabwe, and um, I have no recollect. I didn't realize they were special at the time, and I, I have really no recollection of what these things look like or how. But it's written on my website, therefore it must be true. The guide said it was this, and the, so I just go on that sometimes. But now I have more pictures and things. I'm a bit more certain, but my memories my memories will last. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. Documentation. Right, so how many species of mammal are there on the planet at the moment? Because I know it, it changes all of the time. I mean, for example, yeah. in the bat world, we are finding uh, or we're becoming aware of new species all the time. Uh, what is the current mammal list uh, for all species? Uh, you know? Yeah, I ought to know this exactly. On my site, there's actually, um, I've got a list that I'm trying to say should be the official list, if you like. I think there's about just over 6,000 on that, maybe 6,100. Okay. Um, it, it went up a lot when I last updated it because of because of all the splits, essentially, all the genetic work that's being done. Yeah. Uh, and that becomes quite controversial for some people, but yeah. yeah. And to the penny, because I know you'll probably know the answer, how yeah. many individual species of mammal have you seen so far? Uh, yeah, well, uh, 1,965. Oh, wow, wow, yeah. that's pretty amazing. I've got my list here, okay? Okay, yeah. Um, and it's just shy of 200. So, oh, right, yeah. Uh, it's, it's not that great, really. Um, especially when probably about um, a third of that 200 are probably bat species. So when you take the bat species out, uh, yeah, it's pretty... It's pretty light. And I was looking back, and you're going to be totally underwhelmed by this. Yeah. But uh, I did a, it was actually our honeymoon. Okay, so I'm going to make an excuse for myself for it. Yeah. But we had our honeymoon in, Cost, in uh, where was we? Costa Rica. That's where we were. Yeah. We were in Costa Rica for our honeymoon. And don't laugh, okay? But my mammal list for our honeymoon in Costa Rica was 11. Eleven. That is pretty bad. <laughs> it was your honeymoon, so I mean, many, many um, partners would be struggling to get eleven if their spouse wasn't completely committed to mammal watching. So I think <laughs> you should be pretty proud. I don't know. I kind of thought eleven. I'm glad it was a good honeymoon. We we, we did a lot more birding than mammals. Okay. Um, right. There's something. And also, I just say that seventy bats is really. You, you say that somehow that 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 weakens the number. I think it should promote it because they're, they're the difficult ones to see, right? Anyone can go to Africa and pick up a bunch of ungulates, but having 70 bats there is a great, a great thing, so, yeah. Well, listen, I'll, you've just reminded me, because I, I forgot I was going to mention this, but I've yeah. actually checked your European bat list, all right? Yeah. And I've seen something that's not on your list. Oh, no, have you? Party-coloured <laughs> bat, maybe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Party-coloured bat? That's perhaps. the one. Yeah. Oh, I want to see that. Where'd you see that? Uh, Denmark. Uh, 
very, uh, really? very easy to see, actually, if you're really? to go. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you have to tell me about this. Uh, um, I'll I want tell to you about it after, yeah. after the recording. Yeah, yeah. All right, then. Oh, fantastic. If you, ever go, if you ever go, I can arrange for you to meet someone uh, that could take you to Particolored Bat. I'm going. I'm going very soon. I think after hearing this, so yeah, that's what I really want to see. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, so so uh, one thousand nine hundred and whatever it is to you, and yep. one to me. So. <laughs> now, Have you uh, seen a, a European water shrew? The UK water shrews. Yeah, I've seen. Uh, I've had common shrew and yep. I've had pygmy shrew yep. in the hand. I've yep. never seen water shrew. In the wild, I've seen water shrew in enclosures, uh, okay. but I've never actually seen a water shrew in the wild. That would be I've, one. But I've seen pygmy and common shrew. Mm. Um, I'm actually, I'm actually quite good for the small stuff because uh, before I was into bats, I'd been on a couple of courses on small terrestrial mammals, which involved yeah. life catching uh, mammals and. I pretty much, not not for the reason of uh, ticking them off, so to speak, but just as a bycatch of that, uh, I pretty much managed to see all of the main stuff that kind of scurries around. Um, yeah. yeah, so very lucky in that respect. So, yeah. yeah. Look, also, the other thing I want to mention, okay, no, here's something you, you said earlier. Right, in the birding world, okay, in the world of twitchers, and I'm just wanting, just curious if it's the same for you guys, okay? Mm-hmm. I would never be allowed, okay, officially speaking, to claim that I had seen a bird unless it was a bird that I was capably able to identify on my own or I was able to verify, uh, albeit with the aid of a guide, that what I was seeing was actually what the guide was showing me, yeah? Yep. Do you have any kind of litmus test that you live by in that respect? Um, do, or do, do you ever just take somebody's word for it? Or Yeah, yeah talk about that. Very good question. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's this is something that comes up quite often because there is no, I mean, it's, you know, we can, we can all form our own opinions of whether, whether such and such a sighting is reliable. Um, based on photographs, absence of photographs, descriptions. There's no way that I'm not going to set myself up as a sort of judge and jury for every report that comes in and say, I don't believe you saw this, or how do you you know this? I mean, sometimes I can ask questions a little bit just to to form my own sense, but I'm not, it's not my right or role, I think, to do that. And there isn't a strong enough, I mean, in the birding world, I know it can get quite quite serious about this and um, there's mechanisms and there's, you know, rare bird committees and all these things. There's nothing like that. Um, for myself, all I can say is that this is what keeps me awake at night is whether I can claim <laughs> such and such a species. And I, I go back and I think about it and I really agonize sometimes. Um, I was just, I think I said I was just in Ecuador and I saw a couple of things there that I really would love to, to include, but I've been thinking about, it. I just can't, I can't be certain. So, when I sort of look at my list of 1965, I think there's about 80 on there that I'm, I've included, but I've flagged as I really like to see those again because I'm almost certain, but unless I get them in the hand, which and that's the trouble with many mammals, you know, bats and shrews and rodents is yeah. you really need to, to hold them and measure them and look at the teeth and all these things to be, yeah. to be sure. So it makes it very difficult. 
Um, but yeah, I, I take it seriously. Um, and so do some other people get quite, so they write to me quite sort of hot and bothered by such and such reports come in and they claim to have seen this and that's just not possible there. And I go, well, you should write to, to him yourself because I don't know. And I can't say he's, he's wrong. I don't want to say that, but you know, caveat emptor. Yeah. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, Got to keep, got to kind of keep this stuff relatively fun, relatively exactly, enjoyable. Exactly. Yeah, it you doesn't know, really matter. Uh, yeah. It can't, um, you know. There, there is a place for the seriousness and the academic accuracy and all this kind of yeah. stuff, and there is a place where it's just the joy of engaging with something and stuff. But, but you know, what you're describing there, I have exactly the same in a much smaller way. Um, things that I think that I've seen, but it was just a glimpse, or yeah. a, it's happened to me quite a few times with bird species. I've pretty confidently thought I've seen a bird and mm -hmm. I've identified it. And then a couple of days later, I realize it's maybe something very similar to another species. Yeah. And I never noted the color of the legs or yeah. something like that. And at that point, I then just go, oh no, oh no. I've just got to let that one go now because yeah. it might have been the other one, you know. Uh, so I would imagine you go through stuff like this, yeah. Every uh, every day, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's important stuff, but as you say, it's it's a very personal thing, and it's it should be fun. And yeah. you know, if hundreds of academics and NGOs were mobilised to send people out, if someone reports a unicorn um, <laughs> in the middle of France, then it would be a problem. But I don't. I think they're sort of smart enough to to be skeptical about some of this so that it's not going to enter the literature as a, a confirmed record. So I, I hope that's that's what happens. It's not doing any danger. Now, you started, I think you just started doing the podcast fairly uh, recently, but, yeah. uh, and I've, I've, I've been watching, I've been watching a few of them. Um, and these podcasts uh, are available via the website. And I think they're also available via the YouTube channel that we'll tell people about later on. And I've listened, I've listened to these podcasts and wow, really, really professionally done, uh, really interesting. Um, we're up to five at the moment. Uh, how often are you doing these? Is it once a month? I mean, what is, what is the plan for these podcasts that yourself um, and Charles are doing? Yeah, so I'm doing these with uh, Charles Foley, who's, um, you know, he's a professional mammal person. He was the guy who wrote to me about aardvarks um, yeah. back in 2006. So we've done, we're doing them every two weeks, more or less, as best we can. Um, and you know, as you say, we've had five full episodes and an introductory one. There's a, we're putting out trailers on YouTube, but the actual podcast is on things like Spotify and iTunes and sort of podcast platforms. Yeah. Um, yeah so each, each one's sort of 30 to 40 minutes. Um, we're both traveling uh, over the summer, so let's see what happens to them in August. But we have a couple in the can, as it were, for for the um, for the for the next two ep two episodes. And it 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 has been a lot of work, but most of the credit for the you know you, you said that they're looking very professional goes to Jose Gabriel, who's one of the one of the people who's coming up. Jose Gabriel Martinez, who's been doing all the editing um, and making the films, and he's an absolute wizard with this. So he's. He's done all the heavy lifting on that. Charles and I just talk. Okay. Yeah, and I know, look, uh, 
I mean, I've seen how professional these things are, and obviously we've got a bit of experience of doing things similar here, but uh, not to that level of uh, standard, I would suggest. But I know how much is involved, for example, from what myself and uh, Aaron, we did a, we put together a seven minute trailer for a product that's nothing to do with Battleability Club, it's a separate product, and seven minute trailer that was done reasonably professionally that took us something like four hours to do a seven minute trailer um yeah, wow. pretty you know that was with it didn't take us four hours to format but it took a it took us four hours mostly aaron to get the editing the music uh, yeah. everything pretty much seamless the way that it wanted to be uh yeah. reshooting snippets here and there and stuff um yes it's a lot of work these people behind the scenes that do things um yeah you know i can totally relate to that totally okay let's uh let's move on um i heard on one of your podcasts the story behind you seeing your first giant panda possibly the only time you've seen a giant my panda. only yeah my yeah. only giant panda yeah. Yeah. go and just tell us uh, a little bit about this and everybody we're going to get a couple of batty tales from john uh, shortly as well but i love this story when i heard it and i just thought yeah go for it yeah okay <laughs> um yeah so this this is definitely one of my favorite favorite ever trips um for a variety of reasons so it's it's the autumn, or the, not the, the Australian spring of 2005. It's sort of October. And I'm gearing up to leave Australia. And my wife and my kids have already left to sort, sort their lives out in France. And I'm living sort of in my house in Australia with no furniture, waiting to, to move out and rent the place out and catch up with them. And I'm you know, flying across the world, back to Europe. Very, very sad to be leaving Australia. And I'm thinking of something that can help make the transition. So more bearable. What can I do? Well, I have to stop on the way and look for some mammals for a week, right? That's surely what I need to do. And I, you know, looking at the map and all the flights go through Asia and I've been to Thailand a few times and I think, you know, why don't I go and look for giant pandas in China? That would be fun. Um, and I asked a couple of buddies in Australia who, uh, they were professional bird guides who'd done a lot of trips through China. And they were saying, you yeah, just forget it. No one's ever seen a, a panda. It doesn't happen. You can't go to the places. And they had a long list of reasons why to put me off. So, yeah. And then I stumbled on something that the WWF had just introduced uh, or promoting an eco project, ecotourism around giant pandas um, in the Kinling Mountains in the middle of China. And it had only been going like a month or two, I think. And so I thought, ooh, this looks good. I knew nothing. I didn't, they said they were WWF back, but they, I really didn't know. So I wrote to it was www.giantpanda.com, I think was the name of it, the <laughs> Chinese tour operators running it. And they spoke perfect English. They were very, very good. And I think they didn't even ask me to send any money up front. So I was thinking, well, I've, why don't I just go there and try? This sounds like fun. And they were saying, yeah, there's a chance you'll see them. They're in the forest. And so I turned up there and I was, I was a little bit apprehensive about just plunging into the unknown. There were obviously no trip reports from here and there was no more information other than what they told me. And a couple of days literally before I got on the plane um, to China, I get an email from them saying, Mr. John, uh, some news for you, please don't worry, but there's been a small problem. There's been a landslide on the road into the reserve and we'll have to walk in and it's 25 kilometers 
uh, to walk into the reserve. Oh, holy shit, you know. Um, <laughs> but they said, no, don't worry, there's horses and it's not very steep and we'll carry your bags. Because I had a load. I was carrying half my stuff, as much stuff as I could put on the plane to go to take with me to France. I had of a, course, a ton yeah, of stuff. You're not going back to Australia, are you? Yeah, so yeah. the only person to take several... <laughs> several business suits to the, <laughs> the China Reserve. Um, so I I got there and sure enough, there was a landslide, but they were waiting with horses and it was actually a beautiful walk in and they even sent a motorbike to help me up the lot, sort of the steep two Ks in the middle. Um, and when I got there, it was a very, very, it was a Chinese research station, extremely basic. There wasn't even a bathroom. The, you know, the bathroom was just an open ditch that was communal, um, but absolutely stunning stunning location it was the autumn there you know the forest was golden in the mountains and it was this mix of bamboo and deciduous forest and the basic deal was there were a couple of trackers from the it was like a village and the research station and the village was something like of medieval times you know there were open fires people cooking bread in them um yeah so just like a very 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 special place the two guys who went with me into the forest every day um uh, mr jay Mr. Sorry, Mr. Zhang and Mr. Hay. Okay. Um, they didn't speak a word of English between them, apart from the word panda. And they were guiding <laughs> me every day. Um, and they, these guys, camo gear, they, they, were, they were classic, right? But I would say two of the most extraordinary guides I've ever had anywhere. And I've had a lot of guides and worked with a lot of people who are far better at finding wildlife than I will ever be. But these two, they had to have a gift. So every day we... We, you know, we'd have breakfast at the reserve, which was some sort of hot lump of hot kind of congealed bread. Walk into the the forest and just start walking along creeks and up and down. It was very hilly, but sort of sh small hills, no trails, thick forest. And the deal was, we'd walk for sort of half an hour, forty five minutes, and we'd climb up a little rise and they'd sit down and they, you know, have a cup of hot water, and they'd listen and they'd talk to each other and they'd sort of agree on a certain direction, and we'd head off. And half an hour later, we'd be looking at like some fantastic mammal, you know? So the first day, I mean, the first thing we saw were golden snub-nosed monkeys, okay. which are the, this one of the most beautiful and strange looking primates on the planet. They've got this, they've got a face like Voldemort, but brightly colored, like no nose. And, okay. um, and then we saw golden tackins. They sort of like, a, they look a bit like a muskox, but golden okay. yeah. in the forest, extraordinary. And um, these weird goat things called gorals. And there was sign of panda everywhere. We saw panda poo, you know, along the trail all the time. And there's big green lumps eating, eating bamboo, these big green okay. lumps of poop and sign where they've been feeding. So they're clearly, clearly pandas in the area, but we, we couldn't see any for the first, probably the first three days. Um, the, first, the, 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 the company sent along, a, one of the sort of funniest side stories, the, the company sent along a, um, an interpreter okay. who, who spoke perfect English and perfect Chinese. And it was her job to translate. And I did, I really didn't, you know, the fewer people in the forest, the better. Um, and I actually think maybe she'd been sent by the government to keep an eye on me because this was a place that, you know, maybe no, very few Westerners have visited so far. Yeah. And it was very clear on the first morning that the, I don't speak any Chinese, but these panda trackers, the two guys, <laughs> they didn't like, they did not approve of this, this lady at all. To, you know, she'd never been in the forest in her life, I don't think. She was, she was huffing and puffing. She didn't like the, the trees she was making a lot of noise and then i think at the end of the first day we we flushed something like a wild boar 
and the the bushes around us just erupted with things charging and she <laughs> screamed and that was it then she didn't need any more persuading she wasn't coming out again so okay. we, we ditched <laughs> her ditched which out. made life a bit easier <laughs> everyone was happier so it's just me and the, the two the two the two guys um and then on the third or fourth day and that we could see the weather was changing this was the day really to find pandas and we 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 heard one very close at about in the middle of the day and you could hear it feeding in the bamboo they said it was a pantry, I believe them. Something was moving very slowly. You could hear it crunching and munching, but we couldn't see it. The forest was too thick. It was probably only 10 meters, 15 meters into the bamboo, but wow. not a hope of getting a glimpse of it, right? So yeah. I'm of course then sort of desperate. This might be my last chance. And what are we gonna do? And I'm so tense. And they, I, I don't even know how we communicated, but I understood what we had to do. And they, we started crawling past the bamboo along a sort of little animal track following the panda and being absolutely silent. So moving very slowly and even moving little twigs out of the way of our hands. So just creeping along. And we did that for a, an hour and a half, I'd say. Um, you know, all the adrenaline pumping through my veins, but still we were no, the panda was just moving parallel and wasn't coming out. So they started talking in sign language and they hatched a plot, which again, I sort of seemed to understood, uh, seemed to understand speaking the universal language of mammal. <laughs> um, and I followed one of them and he went, we went down to a clearing at the base of the hill we were on and we left the other guy at the top. Right. And they, you know, I think they were saying he's going to flush, going to go in the forest, the panda is going to come out and he's going to emerge into this clearing. And, yeah. How they knew this, I don't know, but they, that was their plan. And me and the guide, we stationed ourselves at other opposite ends of this clearing that was probably sort of 50, 100 meters across. And of, you know, I'm looking my side, he's looking his side. And of course the panda comes out pretty much at, at his feet, feet. So then he's like, I can't see it. I'm on the other side and he's beckoning at me. Okay. And he's beckoning that seems to mean both, you've got to run here as fast as you can, but also he's doing this, you can't make any noise. I was like, <laughs> what do I do? So I, in the end, speed won over silence. And I just charging over there like an elephant. Um, and the panda is still very close and it, I just see its big fat black and white bum waddling away back into the bamboo and it, it stops and it turns around and looks at me over its shoulder. Right. And yeah, I probably saw it for maybe five seconds, but that is still so imprinted on my mind. Uh, and the picture that I think you showed of, yeah. of the panda, that was that panda. And it was taken on a point and shoot. I mean, basically probably like a phone by my guide. Uh, where, Cause he was standing right. And that's how close he was. This was a tiny camera. It's not cropped. Wow. Um, so, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So that night we went and we had a, you know, a party to celebrate all the mammals we'd seen. And I remember waking up the next morning um, and it, it didn't, I forgot for the first 30 seconds, I was not waking up, where am I, what's going on? And then I suddenly remembered, I saw a giant panda yesterday. Oh my God. And I just felt so good. Yeah. So much, you know, I can still feel that, that happiness coursing through my veins when I tell this story. So yeah, it's absolutely a wonderful place. And, such an exciting thing to see. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing, amazing. I just, I just love that, love that story. And yeah. uh, and it is often so much to do. Uh, when I listened to the interview that Charles did with you uh, on the podcast, he said something that I could totally relate to. And it wasn't quite, I won't phrase it the way that he phrased it, but mm -hmm. sometimes it's that, anticipation that you're possibly 
going to see something that if you're in the right place where the potential is there for something to happen. Sometimes that can be uh, quite exhilarating in itself, even if you don't actually get to see what it is you went to see in the first place. Yeah. Um, and when you put in the legwork mm-hmm. and you go through that, uh, I'm in the right place, I'm doing the right things, I, I just need a little bit of luck on my side or mm-hmm. something just to change slightly and you get that five seconds. I remember the first time I saw a, I saw a leopard, uh, which yeah. was in uh, Sri Lanka, and we were looking for other things as well, And but we were trying really hard for leopard. And yeah, uh, we just went an hour longer than we should have. We were all knackered. We all wanted to go back, and it was our last day at that particular part where we were and we decided let's give this another hour and it was like 50 minutes into that last hour where we got one and it was a bit like you with the panda it was like less than five seconds but yeah yeah, we went we went back to the hotel that night and absolutely knackered but just totally exhilarated that that extra hour when most of us just thought this is pointless. It's never going to yeah. happen. Yeah, uh, you can probably relate to that many more times than I can. Yeah, I mean, to- totally. Um, those eleventh-hour sightings, and the more effort you put in, I, I think I described it as foreplay on the podcast. But it, really is, <laughs> okay. it makes it all the more better, you know, when you actually have that 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 climax at the end. Um, I think one of the sort of related to that is one of the the ways I think I've consciously tried to change is appreciating the trip more and being trying to be less stressed yeah. and obsessed about the actual goal. And um, what, what this really hit me when I was reading a, a book by one of my favorite Australian authors, a guy called Tim Winton, who writes a lot of books and novels about the West of Australia. Uh, and he had one set in the Pilbara, which is a sort of area of north, the North of West Australia. It's beautiful kind of red spinifex grass, red, red sand country and very dramatic. And he was talking about the scenery up there. And I was thinking, oh, reading this book, thinking, wow, that sounds amazing. It sounds so beautiful. I'd love to go there. And my next thought was, oh, hang on. I was actually there for a week, wasn't I? Catching small mammals. And I just hadn't really paid much attention to the scenery because we'd been on a mammal survey with Parks and Wildlife. And I'd seen a ton of really cool small Australian mammals. But I then realized that this is just silly. Like, if I can't appreciate everything else then I'm, I'm doing myself a disservice so i've tried i've tried to, to, to make that transition and it's worked most some of the time sometimes i still get very obsessed and frustrated but i try not to as much as i used to yeah yeah and I'm, i mean in my younger days when i was very much a twitcher um yeah. I, I i had a similar transition i suppose for different reasons um I mean, for me back then, and this was long before I got involved in bats and stuff, but it just stopped being fun. It just stopped being fun. There was just too much pressure and too much disappointment if something wasn't seen. And that almost offset the joy of the next thing being seen. And and 
I'll tell you the thing that it was, okay? Uh, and it wasn't one thing, but it was a, a, it was a lot of things that happened over the space of maybe six months to a year. But uh, I was watching a, a great grey shrike in Centrebilt, Scotland, which is a very rare bird here. And I got my telescope set up. It was an out-and-out -out twitch. People were coming from all over the country to see it. I only travelled 15 miles, something like that, so it was fairly local. Yeah. And I sat there and I watched it for maybe an hour, including it butchering uh, some prey that it caught, mm -hmm. doing that yeah. behaviour that these birds do. And I think in the space of the sh relatively short period of time that I was there, there was probably maybe 20 people came, saw the bird and left. You know, <laughs> I just thought, no. And I thought, that's me, that's me. And I just thought, I just can't do this anymore. I've just got to take in more, you know, <laughs> take in a wider perspective. <laughs> and that's, uh, so yeah, yeah. But no, really interesting. Like you've got some batty tails. Um, let's, yeah. not necessarily about any of these bats, um, yeah. But uh, going to, there was a couple of things you told me about before that I'm really keen to hear about. A yeah. story from Thailand and a story from Hungary. Both countries I've been to and right. both countries I've seen bats in, as that happens. Uh, so that's just a coincidence. But tell us yeah. your Thailand story and your Hungary story. Yeah, um, Yeah. I mean, both of these are for two of the times I've been most frightened um, by when I've been mammal watching and both of them completely my, my fault. Um, so Thailand, I think it was the first time I've been to Thailand and it was probably like 2002, some stopovers between the UK and Australia. And um, yeah, I've never been to Thailand, never seen any of the bats. And um, I was with a, like a local guide um, and he was, he'd never been to see bats either. So he, we were in, I think near Khao Yai National Park, which is a big park, so yeah. not, not so far from Bangkok. And he, he gets sort of, he hears, you know, there's a bat cave and there's a guy, a villager who can take us there. So we're, I said, great, you know, I've been to caves in Australia, this is fine. Um, so we're driving along and we, we, we trying to find the guide and we eventually realize this tiny old man with a cell phone and the bicycle is the guide. And the villager. <laughs> okay. um, so we stop and it's beginning to rain at this point. So the guides, they're talking, he goes, yeah, come to the bat cave, no problem. Now in, in Thailand, as in many other places in Southeast Asia, there's quite a booming market in guano. They harvest it from the bat caves and they yeah. use it for all sorts of things. And this guy, I think, basically was a guano collector. So he was taking us to one of the caves and the, I didn't know what species was in the cave, but apparently there were lots of bats. It's all very exciting. Um, so an entourage, there was, there was me, the, the guide, my local guide, another guy who was with us and woman who worked for the guide, the, the guiding company as well. We're all sort of on this trail and it's you know, a trail through the forest is fine. And then we get to the first ladder um, and it's a bamboo ladder just nailed to the cliff. Oh, no. Built for a, a guide who weighs half as much as, built for a back, you know, background collector who weighs half what I do. Yeah. So I'm looking up and it's not that long a ladder and I think, well, the cave's just at the top. And I, I, I'm asking my guide, well, where's the cave? And he, oh, it's just, just here, just, just up there. So we start going up and up, we're going up this first ladder and it's beginning to rain heavily. So it's slippery. And then I think one of the rungs snaps. And I put my weight on it. It's really flimsy. And I'm like, oh no. And at this point I look back and two of them have turned back already. So it's just me, 
the guano collector and the main guide get to the first ledge and it's just a sort of path and along another bit of rock and there's more ladders you know another ladder and going panawa is this you think this is safe and he's a he's a born, born again christian so he starts praying loudly <laughs> dear god please protect us all especially mr john who has a young baby back in australia we will get through this kind of like, oh, no, this doesn't look good so but you know this is my stupidity that i could have i should have turned back at this point but i'm okay. well, probably just the top of the next one now we've come this far we might as well keep on going so we went up the next ladder and of course it wasn't at the top and then we we ended up going up several ladders more um and these things were just nailed onto the cliff and they were so flimsy and the very lot then we could see the cave and there was probably we were probably 50 meters up at this point on the sheer cliff and to get to the cave there was a plank that was one end was in in the cave which was right on the cliff edge and the other end was resting on top of a bush inside <laughs> it's just like this and i'm going oh. and i didn't want to go back at this point but this plank was just a plank too far and I, <laughs> and I went, what really oh don't worry there is an easier way down there's an easy way down it's fine well why didn't we come that way in the first place but, okay so i just sort of the other guy went across the plank first and said it was fine and made it sound so easy so he, i think he held the end and i walked and it was terrifying it was a short plank but long drop got into the cave full of bats all um the uh the very common free-tailed species uh, uncollipped maybe uncollipped bats uh, uncollipped exactly yes yeah. okay yeah full of those which i didn't realize at the time were extremely easy to see just for everywhere in southeast asia but yeah. they're my first one so at least i was happy <laughs> um i was happy for a few seconds until i looked for the easier way out thinking there was a back door to the cave and there was nothing so then I said to Panama, where's the easy way out? And he just smiled, oh, no, it's the same way. So we had to go back down, um, <laughs> the same thing. So how, how I survived, I, I weighed a bit less then, which would have helped. But um, yeah, that wasn't, wasn't my proudest moment, but it was certainly one of my, my most frightening ones. Wow. But I did get a new life on that day. So really <laughs> <laughs> and then what about hungry? Was something to do with aquarium hungry? Oh yeah, that, I mean, that was party colored bats, the bat you have on me. This is one of the okay. reasons I really want to see it. Okay. Um, this is a much shorter story, but there is there is a quarry, uh, a limestone quarry in Hungary where there are particolored bats roost in the summer. Okay. And I'd looked for them once before with a guide and they'd gone. They, they don't stay around very long. I think they sort of leave earlier in the summer than I was there. Okay. So I was back there and I think this time was spring. So maybe a little bit early for the bats. Okay. The guide, the scientist I knew couldn't come with me, but I knew where the quarry was. And he said, be careful. It's quite crumbly. So I was you know, cautious and it's, a big cliff with a 30 meter drop, but then a big flat area, which you can easily walk to. So the, getting there is not the problem. And I'm walking around the cliff face, looking at cracks and trying to hear bats. And I see a crack that looks like, oh, maybe did I hear something squeaking? And I, I just lean very gently on this crack with my light and a boulder the size of a smart car just peels off what I'm leaning on, just sort of slowly comes away and it just falls onto me. And I kind of catch, you know, a lot of it's still supported by the cliff, but it's pushing on me and it's part of it's on my hip. And there's no way I'm stopping it, but it's coming slowly. So I sort of dive out of the way. And then I start sliding because it's on a slope and it's all loose gravel. And I got my camera around my neck. I'm spread eagled and I stopped, you know, probably three meters from the edge of this cliff. And I'd have just gone straight over the side. And the boulder doesn't, doesn't roll onto me, but I've got a massive bruise uh, around my waist with this rock. You know, it's already bruised and looks awful. And I'm 
you know, a couple of meters more and I did, that would be the end of me. So I was like getting up and I think I was walking back to the car thinking, that's it. I'm not going to look for bats anymore. This is crazy. I was, I was ready to hang up my binoculars. This is it. I've survived and no more. But of course, by the time I got to the next place, I changed my mind. But um, yeah, I was really shaking. That was a very foolish thing to do. What well, I arrange for you to see party colored bat. All right. Yeah. You're going to laugh. <laughs> it's easier, <laughs> safer. <laughs> You're going to go, oh my goodness, what you went through here compared to what I'm going to tell you about. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. You know, you, you'll be able to sit there with a Costa coffee. Right? Oh, that's my kind of mama watching these days. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Right. Okay. Let's, uh, let's, let's move on. Let's move on. You must have, uh, right. You must get asked a lot about this, yeah? Your, your, uh, what do you call it? Your greenhouse emission footprint, okay? Yeah, carbon <laughs> footprint. It must be pretty horrendous. Uh, how do you, how do you tackle that? Um, and this is something that you told me about earlier that uh, yeah. I'm giving you the opportunity to speak about, yeah? Thank you very much for the chance to plug this project. Um, absolutely, I have a horrendous carbon footprint. Um, and I think, you know, any of us who travel to look for wildlife, it would be the most, I think this is the single worst thing we do. There's discussions about the impact we might have when we get there, but this, you know, the flying around is awful. So what do we do about that? Um, you know, the answer is offsetting, I think offsetting our carbon emissions by giving money to forests where they're planting trees or they're protecting trees or otherwise be cut down. And that's a, you know, win for, for CO2, but it's also a win for the, the, the biodiversity of that particular ecosystem. Yeah. Um, the trouble is it's it's not very well regulated, I guess, and people don't know how much to give and where to give, and is it really going to the trees? So there's, there's an organization called Stand for Trees that make this easy, okay. um, and they work with a number of projects around the world, but my favorite is the Gola Rainforest in Sierra Leone, which is a superb ecosystem. It's where, from the previous picture, I photographed the hammer-headed fruit bats, okay. or the hammer bats there. Yeah. It's where I saw a pygmy hippo, um, so it's a really special place. And I think, you know, the RSPB, uh, I think it's part run by the RSPB. So it's a sort of solid organization. So if you go to that link, you can, you, you know, it'll very clever. You say, I flew from here to here. It was economy class or business, whatever. And it tells you how much you should, you should give to, to cover that carbon, uh, plant trees to cover it. And it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a huge amount, but it's, it's significant. If we do this for every trip, um, it's it's really important. It's a way to sort of answer that question. What about your carbon footprint? Well, I can sort of answer it now that well, I'm, I'm helping in some way. That's brilliant. Well, what we're going to do as a thank you to you uh, for giving us your time today, um, Batability is going to do a carbon footprint donation on your behalf uh, to Stand for Trees later this afternoon. Um, we're going to put 100 quid uh, their way wow, uh, this, this afternoon in your name, okay, on your recommendation. And, you know, it's something, um, you know, when you sent me this link uh, earlier in the week, I, it's something I'm going to start doing now. And us talking about this might inspire a few of the people that are watching to maybe start doing this or something similar if they're not already. So uh, I think uh, it's really nice to 
talk about it. So, so thank well, you. No, thanks. Yeah. Extremely generous. Thank you very much. And if anyone else wants to give, then then so much the better. I know places like Gola Rainforest, there's there's no ecotourism there as such. So it's they're relying on these kind of donations really to keep the forest going. Otherwise, it's going to be it'll be chopped down. Yeah. So if, if you're a Batability Club member watching this, uh, underneath the video, okay, underneath the video on the club portal. Uh, we'll also include the link that's on the slide, as well as the links to the various mammal watching resources that we've been talking about. Um, so we'll uh, put something, a link straight to mammalwatching.com for you. And there's also a Facebook page and this nice picture of a vampire bat. And you told me earlier it was a common vampire bat. I'm not that yeah. confident I would have been brave enough to call it to one of the three species that I was thinking it was. But anyway, you've got a Facebook page there, which is a really good Facebook page. I follow this page myself, and always lots of interesting posts about people asking where they can see things, or people saying that they've seen stuff, and quite inspiring, I would say. Um, how many how many follow, oh, it's there. I was wondering how many people you had on the Facebook page, almost 2,600 people. That's pretty impressive. And there's also Facebook groups, which are, I mean, this is a way for me to sort of share stuff, but the groups yeah. are more communities. And there's a European mammal watching group Yes. that has okay. 2,000 members now, and it hasn't been around that long. There's a North American one as well, which has a similar number. Okay. And they're really active, and people are really helping each other out and you know, identifying species and giving tips. So it's, it's great to see this growing. No, there's also a really big one in Australia, which was the first, which has maybe 4,000 members in it. Well, what, what I'll do is I'll put the link to the European mammal watching one uh, beneath Great. the video as well. In fact, I think that's where I came across you, first of all. Um, uh, okay. I think you'd put something up there. And and I think I, cheekily, I thought at the time, I said, I'm going to ask this guy if he would be, like to do an interview. Honoured. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, no, so anyway, I'll put links up for that underneath uh, this video as well, everyone. So I think that pretty much uh, is taking us towards the end. I don't know how long we've been talking, John, um, but wow, I've learned stuff and I've really enjoyed, I've really genuinely enjoyed talking to you about this stuff. And there's probably, well, there is definitely a hundred other things we could have possibly talked about, um, but obviously we can't talk about everything. But we'll, don't know, we'll, we'll maybe do this again a year or a couple of years down the line or whatever, and you can come on and tell us uh, some more bat stories or whatever. I don't know. I'd, I'm not going to hold you to, to that. But uh, <laughs> I would love to come on again if, you haven't, if I haven't put you off. Um, not at all. No, not thank at you all. so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and thank you for being so interested. Um, yeah. It's not often I get a chance to talk about this with people whose eyes don't gla glaze over after the first three minutes. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and, and to come on to this um, debatability show, as it were. We hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited, audio-only version of the original video session. The full version, including video, is available via Batability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to batability.co.uk. Till next time, thank you.